The Incomparable Podcast, Episode 10, November 2010. Well, so we're back on the Incomparable Podcast, and I convene uh, into session this meeting of the Comic Book Club. Woohoo! Comic Book Club members say aye. 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 Um, <laughs> if, if you're wondering who we are, I'm Jason Snell, and the other members of this Comic Book Club are Jason Brightman. Hello. Hey, hey thanks for having me back. And it's good to have you here in this in this uh, strange place where we're recording this, which used to be your office. And Lisa <laughs> Schmeiser, who, and you, this was never your office. No. And you've never even worked on this floor. No. So, so there. I was gentrified out of the office That's, so we could have a podcast. We're moving on up yeah. to a deluxe apartment in the sky. That's another podcast. Anyway, the Jeffersons podcast coming soon. So today what we thought we would talk about, and this was a plot hatched in the last comic book club meeting, was the Fantastic Four in all its forms. The Fantastic Four were the original Marvel comic in the Marvel Universe, um, even though everybody thinks of Spider-Man, I think, as, as the, the beginning of the Marvel Universe. It's not true. The Fantastic Four came first. And they have been a stalwart part of what Marvel has done over the last however many decades it is. What, 40 or 50 years now? 50 years? Yeah, it was yeah. the 60s, wasn't mm-hmm. it? 63? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's coming up 50, actually. That'll be interesting. But have never been, you know, top of mind... I think in in the culture, either of comic book readers or of the general pop culture, they they there have been a couple Fantastic Four movies, and there was the Fantastic Four animated series, which we, maybe we will talk about a little oh, bit. I and, hope but we they've do. always been, been Herbie, several Fantastic Herbie Four animated series. Yes, that's true. Actually, I'm thinking of the one from from the our 1960s, childhood, 1960s, early 70s. That one was actually my first introduction to the Fantastic Four. Uh, yeah, the one so, that's based on the Kirby art. So they've been around, but but they've never been. The huge a huge deal, and it's kind of interesting that they're, they're, they they the Fantastic Four is iconic and yet not as well known as others. It's the source for a lot of stuff. I think we could argue right. the Incredibles is based largely on the Fantastic Four, and yet the largely, Fantastic- no well, ordinary family, is no right. ordinary family. Well, that's the interesting thing. They've never been the sort of commercial success, but as far as icons go. They are sort of like the quintessential superhero group that everything else is based on. Right, and they've got the, the kind of family dynamic going on because it's a friend. And, and well, and, I do uh, wonder if the family dynamic is why they didn't catch on as much. Because when you think about it, Marvel was always kind of founded as an alternative to DC, where Marvel's in the real world, and they had aggressively positioned a lot of their their books to appeal to young single and or countercultural readers and then to have this family unit where it was evident to all to, to any reader that all four people in that unit valued the family and would preserve that that may not have resonated with a 14 year old reader the same way it, that you know it, it, it Charles Xavier's yeah, school does it certainly didn't with me growing up you know reading the X-Men and all of the cool comics oh, yeah. Fantastic Four was so lame and dumb and <laughs> silly right. and but Reed, you know Richard smoking his pipe oh right yes. <laughs> but now actually that I'm older and I've just went back and reread some of them and I have a family I appreciate that family dynamic and story, and for now, I don't think the Fantastic Four is lame. Yeah, I I started reading Fantastic Four during John Byrne's run after he left the X Men, and what I what the reason I liked it is because it was, um, you know, I've, I've mentioned before in this podcast that I love the Micronauts, and it was a sci fi comic. I loved Nova, which was uh, a '70s Marvel uh, invention that was a, a, a again. Marvel's Green Lantern, basically, but a sci-fi comic. And the thing I loved about the Burn Fantastic Four was that it is uh, that was a sci-fi. That that was we build spaceships and have crazy science and go to the negative zone. Mm-hmm. And I loved that. That was what I liked about that. That's so, what I really like about Ultimate 
Fantastic Four is they give you these great explanations. For, for example, Reed Richards, oh, you know, every cell in your body has, has been converted to a bacterial stack. You no longer need to eat, breathe, or sleep. Right. You're that, basically this collection of scientific anomalies, and your brain can stretch itself in any direction. Before we continue along those lines, I just need to point out that, yes, for those following at home, we did go nearly four minutes and 30 seconds before Jason mentioned, mentioned the Micronauts. <laughs> <laughs> it, I think the over-under was five minutes, so right. we always choose the under when it comes to the Micronauts. We're going to have to have the all Micronauts podcast at some point. Right. Right. It was, it was, it's it was. the sci-fi thing. I always loved the sci-fi comics, and there weren't that many of them out the, there. And the FF sort of took that role on. It did, which is, especially the in cosmic, the burn run. Like today, today, you get that, too. On Marvel and DC, they have yeah. the, the cosmic superheroes. And actually, um, Kirkman with Invincible is doing mm-hmm. the story arc right now, the, the Viltumrite War, which is a cosmic war kind of story mm-hmm. again. I always loved that stuff. That's why I like Nova. So, you yeah. know, it, it, that's, that's where the FF kind of came in. Before we get too far off here, we do actually have a relatively modern, uh, relatively self-contained Fantastic Four-related book that we wanted to talk about that we all read. Yes, which is we should do that. Which, which we'll start with that as our jumping off point, and that gives everybody out there something that they can read, too, other than just saying read all the Fantastic Four that were ever published and watch those terrible movies and watch right. Herbie the and, Robot. And come back in like six years, so, and we'll talk yes, about it. Yes, and then we'll talk, um, which is Unstable Molecules, which I hadn't even heard of before it was mentioned in the last podcast or after the last podcast was over, maybe. Right. It, it, uh, Unstable Molecules came out uh, a few years back when Marvel was still in bankruptcy and Bill Jameis uh, had taken over uh, as Marvel and Joe Quesada had just come on as editor-in-chief. And it was a sort of a time when they were doing all these kind of experimental, weird, off-the-wall kind of stories. It was a four-issue miniseries. Was it written by? Two th- 2003. Yeah, the, the uh, drawn by a guy Davis and written by a guy named Sturm, who actually is big in the indie comics world. He did the Gollum's Mighty Swing, which is a graphic novel he's, I think, most famous for. James Sturm. Uh. Yes, and now teaches at the cartooning school in Vermont, I believe. And this is available as a trade paperback, is it not? Yes. That's how I read it. All right. It was an easy pickup on Amazon for like $3. Yeah. yeah. And it's a four-issue series, which is always appropriate for this, and the, the sort of uh, shifting viewpoints of the characters across the four, the four issues. But what, what's fascinating about it is that it's not really about the Fantastic Four, and yet it is. It, mm-hmm. It's about comics, and it's about uh, life in, in America in the late 50s. It's got almost a Mad Men kind of feel to it I was going to say times. that. This is the first season I've watched Mad Men. And Ooh. so watching that series in conjunction with reading Unstable Molecules, you get the same sense of claustrophobic emotional repressiveness. Oh, yeah. Sue, <laughs> and, Sue and, in issue two, Sue Strom who is the model for, for Sue Storm, obviously, yeah. is She's basically is Betty, Betty Draper. Draper. Yeah. <laughs> She's cr- just crushed by, not not so much by Reed, her boyfriend, no, but by, by, by society. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, perhaps that, per- perhaps this is the result of just you know, um, reading too much into the subtext, but I did find it really interesting that you've got the homosexual subtext associated with the character who is known in the comics for saying, flame on, const- oh, yeah. constantly. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that jo- yeah, Johnny. I mean, so so basically, the way the story works is that the the premise is that the the Fantastic Four are inspired. That there's actually a scene at the end of the fourth issue where the, the alleged Stan artist Lee and Jack Kirby 
uh, and a couple other guys meet these characters at a party. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. the, the theory is that they that they have been basing um, some of the characters that have existed and, and then these new characters, the Fantastic Four, on these other characters. So there's a guy named Reed Richards who is this kind of snooty scientist who's lost in his work at Columbia University. There's Sue Strom, who is his girlfriend. She's got a little brother, Johnny, who is rebellious, a rebellious teenager, and their parents had died in a car crash. And then there's Ben Ben is he Ben Grimm or is he does he have another name? But he's he is the Ben Grimm analog right. and he is a friend of Reed's from college and, and he has a sort of carries a torch for He carries a huge torch for, for Sue. Sue. He has a boxing gym. Yeah. And um, yeah, he's and he's the earthy guy from Brooklyn that you'd right. expect yeah. from the analog of of Ben. Except that these are people in basically the real world, right? And 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 that's their where Madman comes in. And their family ties are nowhere near as as seamless or stable as the Marvel characters. And that's saying something given the drama and the Sturm und Drang that goes on with your usual Fantastic Four title. But mm-hmm. that was the thing about Unstable Molecules is just how unfulfilled and unhappy everybody right. is with everybody else. Cause the, the subtitle of it is The True Story of the World's Greatest Foursome. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and it's not, of course not true. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the in the yeah, I'm sorry. I hate to break it to you, but they have but these spoiler these, alert. The, they have these prose introductions and postscripts where the, the, the they kind of do this this postmodern, oh, this is how this was inspired by the characters whose biographies you just read here. Yeah, there's reference material yeah. in the back. Yeah, of, it's of it's this. it's one of those, is, you know. Yes, it where, acts as if it is truly true. Mm-hmm. Um and that they've got the uh one of the nice things about it is that it does cut back and forth between this um, this comic strip co- or comic book called Vapor Girl, which yes. is theoretically written by Stan Lee, that is uh, that in the story the artist of Vapor Girl was a f- a neighbor, I mm-hmm. think, yes. of Sue Strom's, and he's the reason that the all the Marvel Comics guys come to that party, and and that's used that cuts back and forth between her sort of terrible life <laughs> and the life of the, and the, the tribulations of, of Vapor Girl. No, it's it's the only person who seems remotely happy with his life in this series is Reed and I think it's just because he's too intellectually disconnected from it to realize what he what he does or doesn't want right because you take a look and, and Sue's in the grocery store and she's thinking I never asked to be the parent of a teenager when I was still a teenager myself the biggest reason she got together with Reed was because she was hoping he'd provide a father figure for Johnny. So that seems to imply that there's she, she doesn't feel any particular connection to him. She was just kind of playing the long con, as it were. Johnny hates everything about his life because he's a teenager and his home situation's all screwed up. Ben can't connect with women because he dumps them after one month because their fingernails are square or they, he's yeah, like their table manners they, or whatever. They don't trim their fingernails properly. Yeah. And, um, because, he's, because theoretically he's still sort of idealized Sue. Oh, yeah. And yeah, it's. Uh, but there's a scene in the back of the cab where Reed is trying to figure out how to propose to Sue, and he's abstracted it too well. It would be advantageous. And the cabbie's right. like, "Do you love her? Tell her that, and just ask her to marry you." And Reed is all, "But why would I do that?" Yeah, it's 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 really. I was very impressed. I think it's really well done, and it's and it, it's definitely interesting to say, okay, people who are knowledgeable about superhero stories and things like that, we are going to take that knowledge and tell a story about people that doesn't involve powers or anything beyond the beyond the real world. And these people are kind of miserable. And I did find it's I, not I, the I feel good say, story of the year. I, I should no. say though that, that <laughs> there are parts of it that are funny. I love the fact that throughout all four, we see the kind of ongoing adventures of Johnny and his and his friend who who 
are bullied by these guys, but get a little bit of their revenge. Mm-hmm. They they give they as, steal the car. They, they don't necessarily yeah. give as good as they get, but they yeah they they take the brake off the car and then later they steal this guy's car and then they get the crap beat out of them. But <laughs> um, it, you know it's the it, defiance that that makes it appealing though. Yeah, yeah, and that was, so that was some some not necessarily comic relief, but a little kind of adventure and fun of showing that that, that these guys aren't going to take it that I that I kind of liked. But yeah, it's it is sort of miserable people in a in in bad situations and and in the end i think that's that sue ends up kind of breaking free from Mm -hmm. her condition whereas sort of reed ends up as this kind of miserable loser in the lab in the middle of well it would be interesting to see if you could take the the basic premise behind this which is take away the superpowers and these the dynamics and the personalities that play out and i'd love to see how that would get applied to other marvel um properties for example what if daredevil didn't have his super enhanced senses and all you have basically is a blind lawyer who has this out, outsized sense of moral obligation and these profoundly screwed up relationships with women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there was actually another Marvel series called Powerless. Mm-hmm. It was a four-issue series and I think each issue dealt with a different Marvel character. I remember uh, Spider-Man or Peter Parker being on the cover of one. And I think it started following those themes, yeah. but uh, I haven't read it. And it was right, it came out right around the same time, so I wonder if that's what they were doing. Yeah, it's interesting because you've got the you know the character mm-hmm. dynamics, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then and then so that's the question is if you pull the the superhero aspect out, what what's left? I mean, you could argue yeah. that I mean, Spider Man Two I think is actually a pretty good movie, but it's really a movie. I think I might have said this on a previous podcast. It's really a movie about a guy who's got problems who happens to be a superhero. Right. And this, the superhero Which stunts is, get you in the door, but that's not really what actually, the movie's I, about. Actually, I just realized that Marvel, Marvel Noir, they launched the Noir books last year. Mm-hmm. And um, I had, of course, picked up the X-Men run. And it's pretty much the same thing where you have these characters and they don't have powers. And they transpose some of the traits. And it, it basically takes those themes and what are the dynamics like when you take the mutant powers or the crazy situations out of, out of the equation and right. stick it in a different historical context. Yeah, the thing I, 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 uh, I liked about Unstable Molecules, it was really taking the fantastic out of the Fantastic Four. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, and then, you know, when you started thinking about because it ends with sort of the the party and the meeting, and so in your mind you're like, oh, and then Stanley went home and created the Fantastic Four, mm-hmm. and we all know that original like Kirby and Stanley kind of run and artwork, and it was fantastic. And then that sort of imagery and like what I brought to the table with the history of the Fantastic Four and how like fantastic and cosmic it all is, really brought the fact that this was like people's daily lives, which really sucked. Um, Right. It made that contrast so great. And then you compare it to your own life and like why people started reading comics for escapism to begin with. Uh, Uh, And (laughs) that was really interesting. um, Which Johnny and his friend do. They have whole conversations about 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 the comics and identify this comic from me describing this panel and things like that. That's definitely uh, a part of what they're doing there. I would mm-hmm. love to know if the writers were influenced at all by The Sopranos, because one of the things that one of the themes that arced through that entire series was that no matter how much you may want to change your basic nature, it is your basic nature, you know. And that was the ending of the series too, which is that despite being in therapy for years, Tony never really changes. He just has a better vocabulary for figuring out who he is. And it seemed like with this, with unstable molecules. Every change these guys made was a result of who they were already, not who they wanted to be. Or, or mm-hmm. you know, they were limited by by they were limited by the na- by the very nature of who they were, which is almost the opposite of any other superhero comic. Which is, oh, you can fly, the world is your oyster, 
Or if you're Reed Richards, oh, you have a brain that can stretch in any direction. You can solve any problem known to man. Well, right, because that's yeah. that's the that's the Marvel way, right? Yeah. Is the powers are sort of formed with the with the character, and they yeah. go along with the character. You don't get the, you know, you get the powers that mm-hmm. that. You don't always get the powers that you you want. You get the maybe, powers you deserve. Maybe you get the powers you deserve. Yeah, yeah. no, that, that that's the sort of Stan Lee model, yeah. I think, in, in some ways. Which is why it's kind of fascinating that you have Invisible Girl in the 1960s, because I, I really wonder what sort of feminist t- subtext there is to that. You know? Right, which is addressed <laughs> dr- dead on in, in, in Unstable the, yeah. Molecules, where she feels sometimes like she's, she's invisible completely in her own life. invisible. Yeah. yeah. Exactly, and there's the terrible women in the in the oh, book group the who are so judgmental. Yeah. And, oh man, I mean it, that's that's that, was that real, whole scene was just just awful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I'm also, I mean, obviously, one of the things that, that that unstable molecules is about is about the creative process. It is about taking elements from a world. And it's reverse engineering it, right? right but it's yeah. taking elements from the real world, and then how do you, as a creator, um, weave these into that thing that that is fantastic and amazing? And so throughout, how do you take these crappy lives and turn them into escapist fare? Well, right, and so and yeah. it's funny because you're playing spot the reference, but at the same time, it really makes you think that not only do you have these four characters, but you've got in the in the first issue, I think Reed is talking about how he's getting sued by a former. A uh, lab assistant of his, who's like Victor von Dom or something mm-hmm. like that, and it's very obvious that that's like he tells the story about how he's got this awful guy who came from Eastern Europe and stole his stole his ideas, and and that he becomes Doctor Doom, and Johnny's buddy, who's sort of short and fat, becomes like a mole man analog, and and throughout it's just like how do writers take bits of real life and turn them into something that is altogether. Or, or mostly different, anyway, if not altogether different. Wow, I've just uh, blown your minds. Okay, let's yeah, talk about all, Herbie the Robot. We concur. <laughs> you know, we, we concur. And well, let's talk for a moment about the artwork. Okay, please do. The, uh, you know, Guy Davis, uh, I think, is one of the most underrated artists in the, the business now. I think certainly he's the best, one of the best storytellers, if not the best storyteller working. His panel-to-panel flow is is so seamless that you don't, even really notice the transitions that you just kind of read through very smoothly and it's like you're watching a scene play out you know he i don't I, I think he's not as big as other artists because he draws real people and not real in the brian hitch ultra realistic movie way but real as in they're all 20 pounds overweight uh dumpy nobody is fantastically beautiful there right no not at all yeah he's currently he does the uh, bprd in the hellboy universe mm-hmm. he's a regular artist on that and his own um marquee book which is uh excellent but uh you know for this kind of story that's like about real people in the real world he gets like the architecture and the clothing and the expressions and his his artwork is just on the sort of side of cartoony but it flows it has just enough lines to get the kind of mood across like a good cartoonist and just the story flows from panel to panel to panel beautifully it also borrows pretty heavily from the comics conventions of the 1960s in an homage way without completely replicating them which i really liked mm-hmm. and whoever the colorist is on this did a, a brilliant job as well because the colors also have that great late 1950s early 1960s atomic pastels feel to them <laughs> Um, something I noticed in the art is that, um, and I think there's a, du- a dual reference here, is in the last issue, 
Sue has has created this party for for all of Reed's people from the university, and he hasn't even shown up yet. Mm-hmm. And uh, we see her stressing out before everybody gets there. And the next time we see her, she's had a few martinis, <laughs> and she's tipsy. And wh- the way it's portrayed, she has these bubbles over her head, which is funny. First, I thought, well, this is kind of like the mundane version of the Kirby Crackle. You know, you get those little bo- bubbles all over somebody, and they're pulsating with with a uh, with a uh, power strange energy. Energies from beyond, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and it also, of course, is the more obvious one that I came to later was it's also that was the invisible girl's power, right? Was to make little bubbles. And mm-hmm. in this case, she's got the little bubbles all around her, but they just mean that she's soused. <laughs> it's very good. Yeah. But uh, but it's it's good. I mean, it's good mm-hmm. stuff. And, and it does not look like anything modern, which is which is part of the, yeah. the really nice thing about the art is that it, it works really well. It's really good, but mm-hmm. it doesn't look even remotely like something from the 21st century, which was published in 2003. Yeah. I think that's why it reminded me so strongly of Mad Men is because since Mad Men as a series strives so obviously to replicate the look of the period, um, this does the same thing, except it, it doesn't quite hit you over the head with, look how authentic we are, look how authentic right. we are. It, instead, what they've done is they've recognized that for modern comics readers, you're used to certain compositions and certain illustration styles and then it somehow manages to marry those back to the things that people were reading in the 1950s and 60s and it it gives it this really beautiful period feel without it feeling anachronistic if that makes sense mm-hmm. it's almost if if you weren't paying attention you wouldn't notice you would just yeah go with it but when you start to pay attention there's all those layers there that's actually i think that's actually a sign of really good comics illustration is when it takes you a while to unpack it and realize exactly how well it's done Mm -hmm. as opposed to people thinking over there with look 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 my costume has pouches look right which is anyway i think guy davis is one of the best artists working today i think um i think there's an argument to be made that comics are always made made to be read more than once Mm -hmm. Because you're a kid and you get it and you want to know what happens and you rip through it, right? So and the first you time you read it, you and... can't help. You see what's on the next page. Oh, somebody's fighting over there. I've got to hurry it, get through it all. And that's read one, right? And then and then I don't, maybe I, I assume people do this and it's not just me. And then you go back and then you, you know what's going to happen. But now you're really making the journey and, and digging down into each panel. Sadly, I think that's less true to, with today's comics that are written more for the the trade paperbacks mm-hmm. than it was, you know, back when we were kids reading comics. The you know, if you read an issue of the Mighty Avengers today and then read it again in a week and another time in another week, I'm not sure you would get more mm-hmm. nuance out of it because it's all decompressed, or because it's so decompressed that you don't. Like, I think in the, the decompression process, all of those nuances float away and have, have gone out um, because it's about more big splashes and explosions and the fact that artists are paid by the page and as are writers. So, you know. More volume. Right. If you were going to write less stuff but make it on more pages. Yeah, I could see that. I, I mean, I still think that there are just art. The pictures have detail that if you're really reading through and sort of saying, okay, and he says this, and mm-hmm. then they fight, and then he says this, and then this thing happens, you know, you're you're not necessarily going to drink in what's actually on the pages. I think that just the just the going back and noticing the the nuances of the art 
but you, and some people don't do it, right? I think right. that's the other part of it is some people just kind of rip through it and get the story and they move on and they're not focused on. Now I can jump again. onto a comic so, storm and let my opinion so be known. I guess, I guess what I'm saying is that, yeah. that the, it's a, something that really can unfold in the rereading. It doesn't necessarily, not everything necessarily does inf- unfold and not that many readers necessarily do it, but that I think there's, there's some natural levels there. Um, oh, by the way, I had I, I interviewed the um, in advance of New York Comic Con. I interviewed the president of Dark Horse, Ooh. and Bill he, Richardson. Yes, and he referred to um, he was talking about their the Digital Comics Initiative, which is now old news. Although I think it's being announced in about two hours as we record this, um, but it, it's old news by the time you listen to this, dear listener. But he referred to what, what you call the flimsies. He referred to them as pamphlets, right? Which is a common term actually is, in the industry. Which is a, which is a good term, and it gets the same thing across. So that. That person on Twitter who said, "Stop calling them flimsies! You're driving me crazy." It's like, well, all right, we'll call, we'll them, call pamphlets them pamphlets now. Yeah, but because that's what they are. Although I always think of pamphlets and think of like Revolutionary War. Pamphlets, I was just thinking, right? well, which were basically if you, ever, sense, right? if you ever read those, though, common sense is not you know, oh, I've skimmed it and I'm done. It's no, <laughs> it's a pretty hefty work. So yeah. Let's bring back pamphlet as a descriptive uh, term for 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 serialized. For the yes, pamphleteers for yes, seri- the for serialized publications. There we go. Pamphlets. pamphlets. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dead tree editions yeah. versus the digital editions. So to get back to the invisible woman in the bubbles yes. and so on and so forth, one of the things I've always wondered about is she really doesn't use her powers for a whole lot other for a whole lot beyond purely defensive maneuvers and. Um, you know, it's usually oh, Sue, quick, block these bricks from flying down. And well, the, the, cla- the classic uses, right? I, I, mean, classic, I think some writers well, the reason have tried I, you to know, make her more offensive. Well, but. the reason I bring that up is because when you read um, Rising Stars, one of the the, the characters in Rising Stars, this is uh, Joe Straczynski's, Joe J- J- Straczynski's Rising Stars series, right. one of the characters, Laurel Darkhaven, her power is being able to create very small force fields or, or, or you know, pinch things open or closed. And she's and an assassin. She becomes a trained assassin because the carotid <laughs> artery is about as big as her force field extends. Ah. And that got me thinking, you know, I, and this may be because I haven't widely read the, the, the Fantastic Four, but why have has it never occurred to Sue Storm that she's got this tremendous offensive power that she could use? Well, I think in the uh, the in preparation for this podcast, I reread the Burn Run, uh, which is of course the second greatest run of the Fantastic Four after the Kirby Lee run, and then I reread the Hitch Millar run, which is a more recent one. And in the the Hitch Millar run, she does. I believe use her, she makes people's optic nerves invisible, thus making them blind. And and so some more things along those lines, not killing people because yeah, that actually comes superheroes. up in Planetary too, where um, her analog, where where the Sue Storm analog, spoiler alert, the Sue Storm analog in Planetary, because her optic nerves have become invisible, her husband has to build her a pair of goggles so that she can actually see, mm-hmm. and it was just the th- the fact that someone thought this through to the logical conclusion. I was really kind of, huh, you're right. If you turn invisible, everything turns invisible. You're stumbling around like a that's right. right, unless you keep your retinas visible. Yeah, in which case you're you're easy you're to find. Floating discs of retina. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But she's done. I mean, I remember things where it's like I create a force field and use it to punch, right? Yeah. And it, it yeah. reaches out, but it's right. not particularly. The, basically, she's a telekinetic. Interesting, yeah. right? Because it's invisible bubbles, yeah. right? The uh, I mean, I've always found her as a problem to be a problematic character. Well, but. I mean, there's a there's a reason why they. Um, 
it's it's what it's Violet in the Incredibles yeah. who has who has those the same teenager powers. who wishes she could be and, invisible and, because and she's all and she's all defensive too. Yeah. She's she's making bubbles to protect the family. Yeah. That's her role. Same deal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Although I find Violet less problematic as a character because again, when you're 14 years old, there are times when you're like, oh, if only the Earth would open up and swallow me, and this kid can have it happen. So in some ways. It's right. it's almost wish fulfillment, and it's also a great metaphor for learning how to grapple with your adolescent demons. Right. When you're talking about a grown woman, it's it's more awkward in in especially as society has evolved yeah. since the early '60s yeah. to have a grown woman um, mother, because of mm-hmm. course the family dynamic has evolved over time too. Married mother mm-hmm. of two, mm-hmm. I believe now. Yes, two. Um, and have her still be the, you know, my power is to hide. Like I said, I've always found her to be a problematic character. I can remember being five or six years old and watching the Fantastic Four animated series. And um, this one, believe it or not, sticks in my head 30-odd years later where Sue goes to have her portrait taken and it's a, in an evening gown, no less. And it turns out it's an elaborate ruse by Doctor Doom to kidnap her. I and didn't know Doctor Doom had his own photo studio. That's there, great. Well, this is the thing. It was a camera where the minute the, the minute the lens snapped, these ropes came out and bound Sue head to foot. And ropes for, out of the camera. Yes, ropes. yes, and she freaks the hell out. Pardon my language. Well, and then they spend the rest of the episode trying to trying to rescue her. And I, even as a five year old, I was all. What the fun? Why would you? Why wouldn't you use a force field? Why, why the face? Yeah, yeah. I well, mean, that, that sounds is, like a plot from the Spider-Man '67 yeah. series, where it's I have this normal object, and oh, haha, there are ropes. Now, Spider-Man, you are mine, and yeah, it's just well, Doctor Doom in that Doctor Doom in that cartoon series was kind of like a wily e. coyote film, and anyway, well, yes. everything it, it was always Doctor Doom, right? Yeah, and it, it, every scheme, no matter how elaborately set up, it always failed. When and we so know that '60s the, cartoons. Not so sophisticated. No, no, sixties and seventies really cartoons. You know, so, yeah. so maybe, so maybe it's the cartoon impression that's always you know made me look at Sue with a sort of. Uh, but even if you go back and take a look at the seventies versus the eighties, you had Aurora Monroe and Jean Grey and Kitty Pride, and all of them seem to have a lot more autonomy and a lot more respect from their colleagues slash friends than Sue Storm ever gets. You know, I, I was just like, oh, come on. You know, you're super powered and the best you can so, do is complain that no one's coming to dinner. So one of the things that I liked about Ultimate Fantastic Four is mm-hmm. that not only did it replace the older man, younger woman relationship yes. with two people of the same age, but it, Sue is in, the field in, leader, basically, that is, is a leader and is really smart and is Actually, if not if not on par with Reed, she is just a, a one step down on the on the uh, on the scientific smarts department. And then she's got all of these other skills, and she you know she she kicks ass in in that. And and it's a it was interesting to see the choices that they made to really reset the dynamic there and how how in twenty uh, 21st century context perhaps that relationship it's like could we fix this relationship yeah. a little bit to me- make them more because more the paternalistic stretchy dude and the invisible lady right, just not doing do. it and actually Reed is portrayed in Ultimate Fantastic yeah. Four especially as being kind of a kind of a screw up yeah and, and that they're you know he his is, father can't stand him he's socially incompetent. He's but isolated. He gets, the, he gets them all almost killed. Yeah. Oh, no. Although I, I look at the Ultimate Fantastic Four almost as a cheat. Like all right, they, you tell. they, well, they, you know, they change the age of Reed. 
and and did that you know brought Sue up to try to explain the relationship. Where if you look at the Millar Hitch run again, uh, which interestingly enough was they had just come off the Ultimates, which was a huge commercial success, and it was like all this publicity. The next book they're going to do, and they started putting out teaser images of panels, and and the next book was the Fantastic Four, and I think the first couple of issues sold really well, and then it basically tanked uh, because people weren't interested in the characters or whatever. But I happen to think that run is so great because it focuses on the family dynamic. And they introduce this old character whose name I forget, but she's uh, Sue refers to her as Mrs. Fantastic. She's essentially Reed Richards as a woman. And it, it I guess she was back in the original Kirby Lee run. She's an old character. It was like who he dated in college. And she was his equal and like super smart and she was doing this big scientific thing in, in the comics. And he, of course, runs off with her. And there's a, a, a lot of the story is about why Sue isn't threatened by her or some of the interesting thing, the relationship between Sue and Reed. And they kind of elevate it and make it work. And not in a, even opposites attract, like she grounds him kind of thing. But She's got that earthy uh, wisdom. Right. It, it wasn't even did. like that. It was it's not the normal right. book learning. It was, but. It, was, it was much <laughs> subtler than that. But yeah. they did it in, in such a way that she came off as a very strong female, interesting character that, yeah, like, and it made sense why uber genius Reed was attracted to her. And she didn't have to be uber genius for him to be attracted to make the relationship work. They clicked. They clicked. And there was this awesome scene. Of, it was their anniversary dinner. Just one of those nice, quiet moments in a comic that they don't rarely do anymore. It was their anniversary. He went back in time, took her to a restaurant back in time. So they could sit in the restaurant and she's like, why did you bring me here? You know, what's the significance? And he's like, oh, look. And it shows them, it's basically the younger them on the street meeting for the very first time. And so that was his romantic gesture was like bringing them back to, so they could watch their first meeting. And I was like, wow, that's actually... Totally you know, very in character thoughtful. and yet very thoughtful. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it was it made the relationship work without having to change it like Ultimates did because they couldn't figure out how to make it work. That's why I say Ultimates is kind of a cheat. It's easy. You make them the same, you make them equal, sure. Now they can be together. But to do it in a way that they're not equals and yet the relationship works, which also could be why, you know, it didn't sell very well. Well, it, it is. But, the Ultimate is a different dynamic. I, I mean, Ultimate is in itself uh, a cheetah by that definition because the whole idea is we take this and we're kind of reimagining it. And so the balance of power shifts in Ultimate Fantastic Four. Sue's dad is the general, and he's the one who gets them the, the snazzy building that they can have all their labs in, whereas Reed is sort of the self-made man in many ways, and his family has disowned him. Mm-hmm. And um, the last time I checked, he had, I, I think he blew himself up and they had killed him in, in some Marvel Ultimate event. Somewhere. He's actually still alive, Is I he believe. still alive but sent to the negative zone or something like that. I don't I know. I think he's secretly working in a lab at this point or something well, like see, that. See, of course, because they yeah. wouldn't actually have the guts to kill a guy, even in the Ultimate Universe. They, they, they always kill like, the, the second stringers, like the the wasp got eaten by the blob and things like that. Right. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, it was disgusting. The, yeah, but anyway, so I, I, I <laughs> different dynamic, and I yeah. thought that I thought... If the point of the ultimate universe is to say, well, what if we ta- what if we reimagine how this might work in a modern context, having it be different and have and say, let's explore what it's like with this sort of different dynamic for the Fantastic Four. I, th- I thought that really worked, and I thought the Ultimate Fantastic Four started out really promisingly. It did yeah. start out strong, and, and then kind it of it did exploded. start strong, <laughs> right? After- As many of the well, Ultimate the- titles did. Yeah. Well, this is the minute you start working in the traditional villains. 
I, or or oh, it's Von Doom, or or you know, in the case of the X Men, the minute they started bringing back Sinister, whoever you're like, oh, here we go. This is a nod to the continuity people, right? Ultimate version of X. Well, right. you know, for example, yeah. Ultimate X Men, I thought was a lot more interesting when it turned out that Logan had infiltrated the team because he was on someone else's payroll and it screwed the dynamics in the trust. And then next thing you know. Phew, Hey, it's resolved. Let's move on to something else. Right. It's, and the ultimate stuff is better when it's things like Kitty Pride moving next door to Peter Parker and, yeah. and dating him because yeah. it's like, whoa, that would what that that's impossible. That could never happen. Mm-hmm. And it's like, all right, that 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 kind of stuff. But yeah. you're right; they had a tendency to back it off and say, well, no, we we don't want to go down these these roads, which is the whole point of the ultimate yeah. universe was to do something different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The weird thing is, is, although I do like the Fantastic Four, I think the one character that I don't kind of cock an eyebrow at is is the Thing. Um, just, I think Benjamin Grimm is a fantastic character inside and out, and um, he's the only one I don't really feel ambivalent about. For example, with well, because yeah, I, I know what you're saying. Because with Johnny Storm, it's no matter what iteration you have, he's he's always kind of the self-involved jerkwad in almost every single yeah, yeah. iteration. They, they actually in the the, yeah. the the best single line in the the Hitch Millar book was uh, as he was going off to join this new band and talk to his publicist and all this stuff. It, Sue says. My God, my brother is Harris Pilton. Or, Paris Harris Hilton. Hilton. Yeah. Her- he could be Who Harris, Harris Pilton. Pilton. Who is Harris The male version. Harris Hilton. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it, when you think about yeah. that, it's like, yeah, that's yeah. Johnny Storm. And that's actually not an uninteresting character in that kind of context. Right. Yeah, but life. it is kind of exasperating in a way. And I, I, guess sure. it, I guess the thing about Ben Grimm, which has always fascinated me, is that in many ways I feel like he's kind of the most heroic of the four of them. Absolutely. you've got a guy who... Doesn't he? He can't ever blend. He's never going to be able to disguise himself and walk among the normals, and he is one of the forces of will that keeps this this cobbled family together, despite having the the, the least sturdy claim to any of them. I mean, he's not married to any of them. He's not related to any of them by blood. No, he just he's a school chum. He just flew a rocket for his buddy, and look what yeah. he got for it. Right. He's kind of like a meteorite mixed with a doula, and. Uh, <laughs> And he's got the wisdom of Brooklyn behind him. Yeah, and, and he's got this really rich backstory where and, you know he's got this really rich backstory where it turns out he's Jewish and sits shiver for people. And he actually had a bar mitzvah when he spent his first thirteen years as the thing because he figured you know today I became a new man compared to when I was just Benjamin Grimm. And that kind of selflessness they do a really the writers have always, always done a really good job of not beating you over the head with it where. You know, it's it's kind of submerged, and so it's oh, he loves pizza, and he loves to arm wrestle with Colossus, and he's always quippy. And again, I feel like he's the real unsung hero of the series, and it always kind of baffles me that Reed Richards is oh, he's the leader of the team when no, he's the idea guy for the team. Everybody else kind of does the heavy lifting when it comes to to execution. Well, I mean, Ben Ben is sort of the moral, he's the grounded one, right? Yeah. I mean, you have to say it. That's sort of the idea there yeah. is he's he's the earthy grounded guy. Well, since they're all analogs and, to earth, wind, to earth, fire, air, and water. So I guess he is the grounded one then, yeah. isn't he? Because he's yeah. the earth analog, and Reed is the water analog, and Sue is the air analog. And yeah. And back in the mid seventies, they recognized he was the most important character and made a cartoon of just the thing. If you I all would remember have loved that cartoon, to, I would have loved to have that, seen it. But, I don't, but I, they I, put him in Marvel Team Up too, right? You yeah. can, who, would, who works better with others than than the Thing and yeah. Spider Man? I well, suppose the uh, you can and Wolverine for some Marvel reason two and one because right? Wolverine is on like five different Marvel teams at this point. Right. For, 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 well, for, for well, Canadian loaner, Thing is also on the Avengers now. Yeah. But the Thing cartoon, wow. you should YouTube it. Because, of course, you took the thing and made him a teenager who had thing rings that you would put together and he would say, thing rings, do your thing, and, and he would become the big Rocky guy. See, that kind of undercuts the essential tragedy of the character, because if you can turn it on and off. Yeah. He also had a, a dune buggy, which was pretty cool. 
Did everybody the The best part was be it was the it was the thing Flintstones hour. And in the opening animation, you have both the Fred Flintstone and the teenager with his thing rings doing his thing. <laughs> ben Grimm, the teenager. I yeah. now glad you to have, awesome. I, I was born too late to, to, to grasp that. Right. And I only had vague memories of it. Oh. Uh, and, and I was like, one day I did look on YouTube, and sure enough. Oh, I hope it gets to Hulu at some point. Every oh. horror. The, the Japanese Spider-Man is, was my find on the internet. Have you seen the Japanese yeah. Spider-Man show? Marvel.com was actually streaming that for where a while. he had the big robots. Oh, oh, it is. It's awesome. like it's like uh, any of the like Ultraman or anything like that. Except Power Rangers with Spider Man. Except he's oh, Spider Man. No. Oh no! And when he can't beat the villain, he gets into his giant Spider Man robot. Yes, seriously. They're, they're so you know. It's funny. Marvel. I have profound ambivalence about robots in comics culture. Anyway, this so Marvel, does not make it better. So Marvel had this whole whole period in the sixties and the seventies where the, where they did the licensing and they did live action stuff and there were Japanese shows and there were all these cartoons and I you know the the original Spider Man cartoon and Spider Man and his Amazing Friends, the Fantastic Four cartoon where they dropped the Human Torch because they were afraid kids would try to light themselves on, on fire, fire and mm-hmm. stuck in the robot and had Herbie the and, robot yeah. instead. Yeah, that see, great burn run I, had that story. Yeah, see, that right, was, right. The whole and Herbie was evil and controlled by well, some computer. That's how you right. can tell. And they also the, had that kid who did who was a fan of the Human Torch in the comic who lit himself on fire. Ah, uh, uh, see, and then one of those heartwarming oh, stories. So meta. Take, Take yeah. that. So, so they went through that period, and then Marvel had its sort of financial problems and some bad deals and didn't do anything for a long time. And then it, it came out of that, the end of the 90s, and started again with another wave of things like the X-Men movies and the Spider-Man movies. And, and that horrible, and horrible. And two Fantastic Four. Two Fantastic two. Four movies. I dragged my husband to the first one. It was a payback thing for you owe me. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm going to make you suffer through this. And I didn't realize I would also be suffering as severely as I Yeah, did. those were bad. I, I just, actually thought the second one was better than the first one. And I said, because yes. somebody asked me about this. And I said, no, 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 no. I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying it's better than the first right. one. The first the difference one, between having the cold and having a flu. The first one is so Abysmal. amazingly terrible that Ugh. it's mind-boggling. At least the second one has sort of, you know, Lawrence Fishburne is the voice of the Silver Surfer. And Andre Brower is the general. Yeah, you know. and, there's, and there's there's some Galactus stuff, although they blow the Galactus story by making it not as interesting as either Ultimate Fantastic Force Galactus or the regular Galactus. It's just kind of a... A flock of black seagully things that it's it's right. It's I think disaster. the best Fantastic Four movie was uh, The Incredibles. Yeah. It was The Incredibles? <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the the live action one. What's strange is they got so much of the casting right. For example, I will I will argue that Yoan Griffith could have been a great Mister Mister Fantastic. And I would argue exactly the opposite because <laughs> yeah. he just has that as a screen presence. He always has that kind of remove anyway, and it's it's sort of that. Hmm, yes, here I am floating in the ether of my big thoughts. And and I thought that presence worked well, but he just connected with nobody. But I see, I actually didn't get that sort of ether. I just got that he was so slight, mm. both physically. like his, it, He had such a slight presence, yeah. and I don't think well, Reed Richards yeah. does. Mm. Even though Reed Richards is off in his own head. Yeah. Back to that Doctor Who pad- podcast, Matt Smith's 
rendition of the Doctor is much more Mr. Fantastic than that guy's uh, was as Mr. Fantastic. You're right. You're, you know, you're, you're sort of right. It's that sort of scattered and uh, not entirely connected to humanity. Right. The, the, um, who's the guy? Chris Evans, who plays the Human Torch. I actually thought encapsulated some of that. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a jerk. I'm a rock star. Right. I don't yeah. care who you are. And now Michael he's going to be flying his trade job as, as the, uh, Right. Michael Chiklis, good thing. And which is why sure. it's it's a little strange in because I, I started watching No Ordinary Family, right? Which is basically it's almost another. Which we fan recently ca- posted a podcast about. Oh, dude! I wish I'd um, yes made the time for that, but um, you know, which is basically another variation on the Fantastic Four. Yes, absolutely. And uh, so it's a little bit of a cognitive dissonance to have Chickless as playing, again, the thing, except without the big scaly stuff. Right, no rocks this time. Yeah. Rocks are expensive. Yeah. But, um, you know, I thought Chickless was great. I will make the argument for Yon Griffith. I think Julian McMahon was very good as Doctor Doom because he sort of traffics in that kind of menacing charisma and lunacy thing. I didn't like him at all. Uh, you know, maybe it's because I also watched Nip Tuck, and he was really good as as, as just a a complete moral void on that show. So... Mm. So that carried over. Plus, Why Dr. though? Was, was horribly yeah. constructed, where he was just like a, a wronged guy who wanted to steal the technology. Right. I think Doctor Doom is a hard character a, to do on film. Why in a, yeah, in, in, right. in a Hollywood filled with lots and lots of blonde waspy starlets do you go with Jessica Why Alba? Jessica Alba. So you know. yes, in a movie with arguably many casting problems, Jessica Alba was the biggest. She's so vapid. Right, and Sue. Well, I suppose Sue that they're going some, that invisible insubstantial. Sue, Sue. Well, first off, you take you take the 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 hot girl who's who's famous because she's hot, and you make her invisible. Brilliant. Yeah. Right. And and then you know a character that already has some problems, as we've discussed, with with how she's portrayed and what her role is, and then you give that part to somebody who is capable of standing there and looking pretty. Oh. See, that's the aside from checklist, they really didn't hire actors who could act. They hired pretty people who were good at being pretty. Which works for the Human Torch, I, I argue. Right. So Isn't maybe Chris that Evans was... Now a, but Captain I kind of look at that as more... Captain America. Oh, yeah. God, those pictures of him all bulked up are freaky. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, yeah, I, I'm nervous about that casting yeah. as well. Yeah, I just think they missed the mark. Where, you know, in the X-Men, which that those films had some problems too, it always bothered me that Hugh Jackman doesn't look like Wolverine. He's because not. He's, he's, he's way too tall and he's all those other things. Lanky. But at least he could act. Oh, yeah. right? he was Wolverine and, though. Right. right. He it, got. He nailed it. Right. Even though it, good actor, he didn't look nailed like it. it to me. But he was Wolverine, right? Yeah. Because the, the higher good actors sort of rule for superheroes. Fantastic Four just missed that like day in class where they were, if, yeah. the studios hire good actors. Yeah. Well, to, to sidebar from it, there, there was a, there, there was a story circulating, circulating last week about hiring John Hamm to play Superman, and and the thing was, well, well, you'd have to go with some Superman who's obviously aged, since John Hamm is very visibly in his late thirties, as opposed to the fresh-faced twenty-somethings that have occupied the role before. But the whole key of Superman is man. Yeah. Like he needs to. Yeah. Well, the last was, one was yeah. Superboy. Yeah. And it got me thinking about how difficult it is to actually to cast. For any of these, any of these things, because it comes down to the tension between really attractive people. Because let's face it, most of these superheroes are are penned as being spandex. Well, they're good looking, unforgiving. People. Well, they are always, and, and the women are, always have anti gravity breasts are yeah. apparently just a superpower every woman. So gets. you know, how do you find somebody who is presumably attractive enough to to be physically believable and yet capable of managing to act? And it's it's got to be tough. Right. But you just hire actors who can play the parts. Like you know, you can say that. Downey Jr. there doesn't actually look like a Tony Stark or multimillionaire oh, industrious. But oh my god, he's got the bust. But, oh, but that's great. the whole thing. You totally believe it. Yeah. Because he can act. Yeah. 
Yes. Denzel Washington once commented that if Hollywood was casting race blind, he would have made a good Superman. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought that, yeah, absolutely, I would have totally, I would have totally bought Denzel Washington as a Superman, especially always, back in the 90s. I always thought Denzel Washington as James Bond. That's he has one. that coldness. So, yeah. so, Lisa, have you and your husband cast the um, the Black Avengers? <laughs> no, we. Um, I, I just I know you guys like to play casting games. And... Have we ever explained? Okay, so <laughs> I'm giving her a blank look right it's now. Just a little so. sidebar. So, okay, sidebar to the sidebar. My husband and I were talking after I read the Denzel Washington interview. I began ranting and raving about how there is an entire generation of minority actors who actually would make fantastic superheroes. For example, I was I was arguing that Dwayne Johnson could plausibly play a Superman-like character or any superhero. I mean, he's got charisma at the yin-yang. The man can rock spandex, as we the saw rock. from his WWE days. You know, can and you he's committed to the... what The Rock is yeah. cooking? He's cooking superhero soup. Yeah. So, the, and what this turned into is, is my husband saying, okay, let's turn Batman into an African-American character, which, again, is very similar to what J. Michael Straczynski did with his um, Squadron Supreme. He did that mm-hmm. with Squadron Supreme. And I thought, okay, Don Cheadle, Batman, that's obvious. And so... <laughs> Instead of being roadie and, and being War Machine in Iron Man yeah. 2. Yeah. But, but and we went and we basically ended yeah. up casting everybody from there. Well, you see, this is why Jason's look of disgust. This is why the casting game is so much fun. Yeah. Right. Is that it brings out sort of everybody's visions Everyone's of what like, these characters really? should really? be. Right. But I think there's, there's example, some... I also argued that Queen Latifah could be Commissioner Gordon because she's just got the best. Oh, I'm, I'm down Black with that. Batman. Yeah. 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 Um, and Andre. <laughs> it and, sounds and, like a 70s no, exploitation my, movie. Well, actually, well, I think, yeah, well, this gets better because I thought, well, you know, you'd have Andre Brower as the Riddler because. The way you would write this Riddler is he'd be so much smarter than the rest of humanity. He'd feel profoundly isolated and resentful, and he'd be acting out on that. And you, Andre Brower is the kind of actor who can convincingly, See, you know, portray that while while also letting you know that he's cuckoo for Coco. This is this is an interesting thing to explore because there are characters like Batman that there's there's. Many, many, many different interpretations right. that are all valid of Batman. Adam you have, West, Michael right. Keaton, Val Kilmer, right. George Clooney. But you, know, you, know, you have super detective Batman, the world's greatest detective. You also have my parents were killed, I'm a psychopath Batman, right. and everything in See, between. See, Batman would be a we're, social activist. He'd be rich, either through his own making or through inheriting money, mm-hmm. and he'd be taking a look at his disintegrating Gotham, which is a Baltimore analog or a Detroit analog, right. and he'd be like... Clearly, the system isn't working. I'm making myself the system, and but you'd have that. We need, we need the, the Wire version of Batman, yeah. right? Oh, David cool. Simon's Batman. Oh, no. But the the thing is, Fantastic <laughs> Four. <laughs> to bring this back full circle, the yeah. Fantastic Four mm-hmm. doesn't have those different versions. No, it's there isn't. The there's same Reed Richards is Reed Richards is Reed Richards. But like you know, Batman has all these different iterations. Yeah. So, which makes casting hard. You wouldn't think Fantastic Four, which has no iterations, really. Like everybody, Ben Grimm is Ben Grimm, and there isn't like there was the Happy Ben Grimm. The well, the difficulty is in the characters, right? The difficulty is Reed Richards is kind of a tough character to crack, and I think some of that. Well, I mean, he is he is a he is a an egghead. He's a leader, sort supposedly. He's a man of action because he's got these superpowers. I think one of the reasons that it might be hard to cast Reed Richards is because that character is kind of a weird amalgam of traits, and and some creators have done better with him than others. Right. You know, uh, Ben Grimm is easier, right? And Johnny is actually easier. Mm-hmm. Sue, I think, you know, just swing and a miss with Jessica Alba. There were uh, there are better options. So the actor Reed, Reed though, you could, you could go in lots Hollywood. of different Why directions. Robert Downey Jr. could probably even do Reed Richards. So, are you guys familiar <laughs> with the site MightyGodKing.com? No, it's a Canadian writer's name and uh, lawyer. His name is Christopher Bird, and he blogs about comics a lot at the site called MightyGodKing.com. 
And back when Marvel did its Civil War arc and all the tie-ins, he re- he basically rewrote the dialogue as a parody and a satire. And the reason I bring this up is because I actually think he's got one of the most spot-on Reed Richards, where he's managed to make a, a parody of the character, but get to the heart of the the guy who who again you know is thinking on a completely different plane as the rest of us. Where the very last issue that he rewrote has Reed Richards writing a letter to Sue, which is. We have two children, don't we? I think the girl and the boy, if that's what they are, I think they miss you. And <laughs> and Anna goes, and it's hilarious. And at the same time, I thought, yeah, this guy has managed to nail his character. And that's part of the problem is American cinema has kind of a, a reflexive tendency to really dislike intellectuals. Like they just think that audiences can't connect with them. Right. And there has to be there has to be more than being a huge brain. And no, not always. Sometimes you just have somebody who's really smart and they're much smarter than you are. And... Yeah, I'm not sure I believe that that, um, that Reed in the uh, live-action Fantastic Four movies was that smart. No, I didn't feel smart from, from you know, him. I, I, I think they that. told us he was smart. I think that's what they try. I think that's where, how, how Yod Griffith was trying to play it is, oh, you know, I think my lofty thoughts, and I don't think through the consequences, and so I spend a lot of time looking stunned in the headlights. Right. Take that, right. smart guy. Because he really <laughs> – I will, I will give you guys this. He really did spend a lot of time in both movies just kind of looking like, shh. What just happened? Oh my God! Right, but my projections didn't take this into account. Yeah, but if you're that smart, they do. They should. Yeah, yeah. It's the I've thought thirty six things down the road. I think it goes back to the American devaluation of, of of brain power. Where it's oh, you think you're so smart, but you didn't think about this there, did you, Einstein? Your your your. You know. Ouch! I think you're right. Yeah. We do value stupidity. George That's what the people. So the people are They're smart enough. To, well, it's Stephen Colbert too, right? It's right. The yeah. People are smart enough to know. Um, what's real um, without the need of facts? That and truthiness. Fact, facts, that, yeah. yes, that truthiness is what is important. Yeah, I th- you know. So I think if it's you have not what I know; it's what I feel in here. Yeah, yeah. I feel that I might know facts, if it were true. Evidence. So, yeah. so before we go, because we are running out of time, um, mm-hmm. I wanted to, to get Jason. You seem to have done the most homework here. What would uh, anybody want to throw out as the um, uh, essential reading if they want to? If they're struck by this podcast to go back and read some Fantastic Four, we'll throw in. Although, unsta- why anybody right. would have to? We just spent well, time unstable. <laughs> <laughs> Unstable Molecules, worth a look. I Unstable think. Unstable Molecules, I think, is actually just a good comic if you like comics. I agree. I agree. Right. Nothing now, to do with the Fantastic Four. It's just a good read. It is. Now, the original, you read the original Lee Kirby run? I have. The, uh, Does it, it hold up? Uh, no, it doesn't <laughs> hold up in the sense that, you know, uh, you would put it against, like, comics today as far as storytelling and pace and all of that. But for, like, a view of 60s mentality... You know, as they're getting into the rocket in those original strips, there's a great panel where, like, I, I think Ben Grimm says, "Oh, you know, maybe I don't know if this is ready yet." And Reed Richards responds, "Do you want the commies to beat us? You know, are you a coward?" <laughs> yeah. like, so just this sort of Cold War wow. '60s mentality in the comic—it's great. And Kirby's artwork is fantastic. And it was just the beginning. No right, pun intended. That's, that's considered to be their best work, right? Right. I mean, yeah. Like, yeah. Again, they- and the introduction of the Silver Surfer and Galacticus, and there, there's some great stuff right. in there, but. It's more anthropological. Like it's Fair it's enough. an interesting trip. How does the burn run hold up? Burn run holds up really really well. In my mind, that's like it has a, the science fiction. It also has those great 
character moments, although it doesn't hold up as them as a family as much. He's more interested in them as individuals and the science fiction aspects. I but, liked it when he brought the She-Hulk in, too. I yeah. That was kind of fun as but, just to, to knock everybody off There were so many stories then, like you had in the 80s, where halfway through the issue, you're like, is this one issue? Because you get a complete story with like beginning, <laughs> middle, and they go somewhere, they introduce this new science fiction concept, and some alien has taken over whatever, and they're like all caught, and then they're escaping, and then they get out, and you're like, holy shit, that was 22 pages? Now, wa- wow. Also watch the Doctor Who references because John Byrne, um, being Canadian, got exposed mm-hmm. to a lot of Doctor Who. And, and there are um, so many Doctor Who references that he sort of lifts, actually. He more sort of steals things from Doctor right. Who and puts them in Fantastic Four. So, then the, so there's the – after the Kirby run, which you can all get in essential paid pa- uh, trade paperbacks, which are like 14 bucks, Or you can get in the coffee table $100 – oversized hardcover edition uh the burn run you can get in trade paperbacks i think there's like nine of them though it was a pretty big yeah run uh and then i would say the the millar hitch which is much more recent modern storytelling pacing feel uh, which is like two trade paperbacks but to show how uh bad it did commercially they didn't ever did like the hardcover oversized which they've done of every other hitch artwork because you know the artwork That's is Brian beautiful yeah. um but they didn't do it with that mm. they did solicit it but it never came out, which wow. meant orders were that low, which is shocking. I think those three – there was an interesting uh, – And the thing with his thing rings doing his thing. Right. I think if anything, uh, dear listeners out there that you should get out of this, Unstable Molecules, great read. Check out YouTube for Thing Ring, Do Your Thing, <laughs> which is just fantastic. Um, and uh, the website you just mentioned. Mightygodking.com. Yeah. The, yeah. Look for the Civil War PDFs that he's got there because those are just fantastic. They're very funny. Mm-hmm. And then we didn't really touch on it, but... 1602 the, we didn't talk about. We didn't talk about 1602 Neil, yeah, or Neil the, the Planetary. Yeah. Oh, and Planetary. Gosh. We're going to have to do just a Planetary podcast on its yeah, own. Planetary's worth its own. But Planetary had its take on the Fantastic Four. In 1602, I really liked how they, how they had uh, Reed and, and, and Doctor Doom. And, and, and that was Neil Gaiman, right? And that was yes, Neil that was, Gaiman. Yeah. yeah Apparently he's got good he, ideas. That's like his stock and trade at he, this point. Is, he donated is, all of the proceeds of that one to his to the Comics Legal yeah. Defense Fund. Mm-hmm. For uh, Miracle Man, Marvel Man. As basically a finger to uh, Seth MacFarlane. Not Seth MacFarlane, Todd MacFarlane. Todd MacFarlane. I like the other Seth MacFarlane. MacFarlane the, the finger because I don't think Family Guy is funny. But sorry, everybody. But uh, Todd MacFarlane, yes, uh, who who screwed him out of lots of money. And they are allegedly, still going at it. And it's still have, yeah. happening. Yeah. But anyway, sixteen oh two is great. Right. I bought the hardcover yeah. of that. It, it is, and another again, another nice standalone piece of work. You don't actually need to know anything about continuity, but if you ever read Marvel comics, you will get a kick out of seeing these characters in a seventeenth century setting early 17th century mm-hmm. setting it is brilliant the uh, uh yeah that neil gaiman guy he's he's, he's good uh, he's gonna he's go places he's got a future ahead of him i think <laughs> he's pretty good <laughs> if he if he works hard yeah that's right and t- and eats his wheaties right comes up with some original ideas yep all right well thank you to the comic book club members once again for coming in jason brightman thanks a lot thank you lisa schmeiser thank you for coming thank you and i'm jason snell until next time uh thanks for listening to the incomparable podcast and now it's clobbering time Play on. This has been the Incomparable Podcast. Visit us at theincomparable.com. 